Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. We resume our consideration of 1 Peter, and today we're going to be looking, beginning in chapter 5, verse 5, through verse 7 of the same chapter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time casting all your anxiety upon Him, because He cares for you. Special occasions can be stressful. And a stress point that many times accompanies those kind of occasions is what to wear for that occasion. My daughter is invited to a special Christmas occasion And she was telling me yesterday that she needed to get a dress, and she went to shop for the dress at Dillard's. And after trying on 20 dresses, she picked what she hoped was appropriate. She still was not quite sure. As I listened to her tell the story, I went back some 25 years. It was warm weather. I cannot tell you whether it was late spring or the middle of the summer. All I know is... When my family and I, all four of us, got into my 1968 Ford Fairlane that had no air conditioning and we were driving from Arlington to Highland Park to go to a wedding of a friend, as we prepared to go, we were talking about what should we wear. And we picked out what we were going to wear. And immediately when we walked into the sanctuary, which was jam-packed, it probably holds 1,200 people, and there was barely a seat that was not occupied, I knew and Sally knew that we had not picked the right attire. It seemed like everybody there was in a black coat and tie. I had a lime green... Maybe that's not quite right. I'm exaggerating. It was a mint green sport coat with dark green slacks to match, and Sally had a beautiful dress that had some hand-painted designs on it. It was gorgeous, but we knew it was not the right attire for the occasion. We probably were thought by most of the people there that we'd just gotten off the turnip truck, and they would not have been far from accurate in their assessment of us. Well, as the wedding began to wind down, I leaned over to Sally. There was one of our children between us, and I said, If you don't mind, I don't think we're going to go to the reception at the Dallas Country Club. And she looked at me, and she gave me no pushback at all. So we made a hasty escape as soon as we could to our car and hauled it back to Arlington, where we lived. Well... Christmas is a special occasion, isn't it? And the question is, what should we wear for Christmas? It's the same thing for each of us. This passage commands it, actually. In verse 5, the Scripture says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. We are to clothe ourselves with humility. One size fits all. And it's appropriate for every occasion, not just as it relates to special occasions, but for every occasion in our lives. I'd like to talk a moment about this matter of humility. I'm going to talk, first of all, about what humility is not. Humility is not low self-esteem. To the contrary, a person who clothes herself or himself with a humility is expressing a proper understanding of who she or he is in Christ. I think about David, who was a man of strong self-worth. But he wrestled with his sense of self-worth. We know this because he penned Psalm 139. And after he thinks about who God is and thinks about the way in which God thinks of him, 
with great fondness. The result was he chortles to the uneducated observer by saying, I thank you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, that was not an expression of low self-esteem. It was a recognition of the fact that he knew why he was as gifted and talented as he was. It's because God had overseen his conception and his formation in his mother's womb, creating in him the necessary gifts and talents to become the person that he was. So, please do not mistake humility for something that is akin to low self-image. It's just not the case. Humility is not denying the power that you have either. Some of people are sort of like humble from the world's perspective, and they can hardly look you in the eye, and they sort of shuffle around, and when you give them a compliment, they just, they just can't even take it whatsoever. That's not humility either. Here's what humility is, piggybacking on the last thing which I said. It's not the denial of the power we have, but it's acknowledging the source of that power. Who is it who gives us the capacity to have confidence in certain situations? We can say with the Apostle Paul that if we have adequacy, if we are competent, our adequacy and competency comes from none other than the Lord Himself dwelling in our lives. This is very important as we consider this matter of humility. Humility is not denying the power that you have, but acknowledging the source. Think about Daniel. Daniel, a young man. Daniel, despite his youth, was a very wise man. And you may recall that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the emperor really of the world, in the sense, had a dream. He did not understand the dream. He called all of his wise men in and said, I need you not only to interpret the dream which I had, but to tell me the content of that dream. Well, that was petrifying because they knew how irascible this emperor was, how whimsical he was, and how wicked he could be in meeting out punishment for failure. Well, they couldn't, couldn't figure out what the dream was. Word got to the young wise man, Daniel, and Daniel got an audience with Nebuchadnezzar, And he said to Nebuchadnezzar, I don't have the capacity to interpret this dream. But there is a God in heaven who can. And then a little later, in the second chapter of Daniel, verse 36, this is what Daniel says. Listen carefully. We will interpret this dream for you. Who was with Daniel? His friends were not with him. They were back wherever they were living, praying for him. But who was he speaking of? He was saying, it will be a collaborative effort between God, who is in heaven, my God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and me, a tool in his hand. Remember, humility is not denying the power you have. It's acknowledging its source, just like Daniel acknowledged the source of the power that he exhibited in interpreting this dream. Humility is, in addition to that, putting others before yourself. If you want to now, you can look, if you want to follow along, as we'll look at some of what is taught in Philippians chapter 2. This is what we read in verse 3 and verse 4 of Philippians chapter 2. The Scripture says, "...do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what is characteristic of a person of humility? A person of humility is one who puts the concerns of others before himself or herself. It's true, isn't it? The truly humble person is self-forgetful and is used by God to minister to other people. Those words are said in the context of one of the greatest passages 
on Christmas in all the Scripture. The incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 5, Paul writes, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing. He took on the very form of a slave. He was a servant. He emptied Himself. There are those who would say, Aha, that explains that Jesus was, in fact, only human while He was here on earth. But that's not what the text teaches. The idea of self-emptying has to do with emptying Himself of the right He had as deity, as God, to decide what He was going to do. Jesus lived in dependence. of humility, we must understand this. Jesus says this in John 5, verse 30. He says, I do not speak or do anything on my own initiative. I have come to do the will of Him who sent me. So please understand that humility is about dependence upon the Lord. It's depending upon His power to enable us to serve one another. One of the key indications that a person is a person of humility is the ease with which that person serves others. The self-forgetfulness that enables him or her to be a servant to others. Jesus Himself said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. It boils down as we go a little further into Philippians chapter 2, where the Scripture says, He became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. The shameful, awful experience that Jesus underwent, He became obedient to death on a cross. Remember, Jesus understood full well what Moses had written in Deuteronomy that anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. Jesus knew what He was getting Himself into when He voluntarily came and substituted His life for your life and my life. He had to become human in order to do that. But He understood full well what He was facing. And it was expressed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what He said to the Lord, If it's your will... Please remove this cup. And he was speaking of the wrath of God. The cup of the wrath, Lord. Please remove this from me, if it's your will. But we know on other occasions, in addition to the one that was cited just a moment ago from John chapter 5, Jesus is heard saying, I have come to do your will, O God. This was his motive. And it's an expression of humility. If I'm humble, or you are humble, we are people who are bent, committed upon and to do the will of God, just like Jesus was. You say, well, that was Jesus, and I'm not Jesus. Well, that's obvious. None of us is Jesus, but what do we know about where Jesus is now? He is in heaven, of course, in bodily form sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. That's what He's doing, according to Hebrews and other places in Scripture. But also, He resides in us, does He not? Christ is in us. And Jesus is the one who enables us to be humble. What is said here by Peter? It's very interesting. We cannot see this because we read with English eyes. But in the original language... Peter takes some of the identical language that was used by the Gospel writer John when he talked about what happened in the upper room before the observance of the Lord's Supper was instituted. You may remember that Jesus and His men, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, came to a prearranged meeting place in an upper room to celebrate the Passover. They got there, 
and there was a basin, and there was water, but there was no slave to wash the feet of Jesus and His apostles. And they were looking around, wondering who was going to do the foot washing. And then, to their surprise, and maybe their dismay, Jesus is described as taking the towel and girding Himself around the midsection. And the word translated girding or clothing, it's the same word that Peter uses here. Undoubtedly, Peter had that etched in his memory as he thought about this experience. And Jesus became a slave, in effect, to them. And then he says, in John 13, probably about 15, he says, I have left an example for you that you should follow. That example. Moses himself, as we read from Numbers chapter 12, was a man who was a humble man, the most humble man on earth. And we see some things from this episode out of the life of Moses that give, gives these things give us a further sense of what is characteristic of a truly humble person. The story, of course, his older sister, his older brother began to grouse and complain about his being the only mouthpiece. After all, he was the baby in the family. Couldn't they speak too on behalf of God? And God did not take too kindly to that. And the result was that God struck Miriam because she was the leader of Aaron in this case, struck her with leprosy which rendered her incapable of worshiping the Lord and being part of the community. And lo and behold, Moses does not rejoice in her ostracism from God and the worship of God. Rather, he does something that is unexpected. He prays for his sister's healing, for her restoration. And in so praying... And so acting, he anticipates in a way what Jesus did thousands of years later. Remember what Jesus told us to do and illustrated it from the cross? What did he say? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he pled with God the Father. And what was the result? The result was that she was restored. Her skin became like a newborn baby's skin. She still had to stay outside the camp for a week, but nevertheless, the Lord brought her back into fellowship with Himself and with His people. There's no hint in that description of resentment on His part. There's no hint of a desire to retaliate toward her. And these things are true of a person who's truly humble. A person who is not willing... To strike back. Last week, we looked at an illustration out of Numbers 11 regarding good spiritual leadership in the church in the form of elders and pastors. And we saw how when Moses was overloaded with work, his father-in-law suggested that he get some help. He took the suggestion and he got 70 men who served as elders and they were supposed to meet with Moses and Joshua at the tent of meeting. Two men of the seventy did not come at the appointed time. Their names were Eldad and Medad. And they were in the camp prophesying. A young man witnessed what was happening. He ran to the tent of meeting where Moses was waiting for the others to get to the place so they could get their instructions for leading. And this young man came to Joshua, the disciple of Moses, and told him what was going on. Joshua turns to Moses and he says, this is happening. And he strongly suggests that Moses should do something about it. But what did Moses say? Did you catch it? Are you jealous on my account? It would suit me if all the people, not just these two men, but the entire group of people who make up Israel would have the Spirit come upon them and they also could prophesy. That's an expression of humility in another way. 
Not only was Moses reluctant and resistant to getting even with his sister and brother, he was also ready, at the ready, to share the limelight and the load. This is true of persons who are humble. We've seen several aspects of what it means to be humble. But let me finish with a general statement about humility before we go and look at the text from another angle. The truly human person is humble. You think about two people, the only two people who were genuinely humble, one only for a while. We don't know how long Adam was like that, but we know when he was created, he was unmarred by sin. And undoubtedly, he was a humble man. He recognized where the power came for his being and doing who he was and the things which God wanted him to be and to do. And of course, sin entered the world. And how did it enter the world? Eve was approached by the serpent who was embodied by the devil, was in the serpent. And how did the serpent approach Eve? He said to her, Surely God would not withhold this fruit from you. And after all, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Right? Appealing to her pride. She took the bait. Adam took the bait. And the rest is history. Ever since, every human being, not a person in this room, has not, to one degree or the other, wrestled with pride. It is an ongoing issue for the vast majority of us. How to overcome the pride that is so endemic, it's so native, it's so basic to who you are and I am as a descendant of Adam. How to overcome that. Jesus, the second Adam, was totally humble. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus is truly humble. You want to see what a truly humble man is? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know what a real person is? A real man? A real human being? You need not look any further than the person of Jesus Christ who, among other things, is the epitome of humility. Jesus fits all these other descriptions. Think with me just a moment. Did Jesus avoid the limelight? In John chapter 7, He and His earthly brothers were talking about the upcoming festival that was going to be held in Jerusalem. And His brothers said, Brother, this is the perfect time for you to go to Jerusalem. It's going to be filled with people. The Feast of Tabernacles, it's going to be filled with people. There will be hundreds of thousands of people. It's the perfect time for you to declare your Messiahship. And then what did Jesus say to them? Any time is right for you. I'm not going. He did go, but He didn't go with them and He didn't make a big splash. He was... Walking in humility in that regard. Well, hopefully that gives us food for thought about what real humility is. And for me, as I've been thinking about this in preparation for what I'm sharing with you today, it's been rather convicting in my own life. A cause for a desire to repent of my own pride. What is the outcome of pride? Let's look again at chapter 5 of 1 Peter beginning where we started and reading a little further in verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Certainly we're to have humility toward God, but we're to have that humility toward one another. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul writes this. He says, prefer one another to yourself by implication. Put others before yourself, you said. Then, Peter goes on to write here, God is opposed to the proud, 
The outcome of pride is God's opposition. In the book of James, this is what James writes. He says, If anyone wishes to be a friend of the world, he makes himself an enemy of God. And then in the book of 1 John, chapter 2, the Bible says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him or her. If I love the world, there's no place for my love for the Father to coexist with the world. And then in the next verse, John writes about the various characteristics of the world, the last of which there are three aspects. I want to talk just about the last one. It says, the boastful pride of life. That is an aspect of the world. And if I harbor pride in my heart, which all too often I have done in my life, if I harbor pride in my life, the love of the Father cannot coexist with that. And the Lord opposes that. Do you have any idea how dangerous it is to oppose God? Please take your Bible and turn to the book of Job. And we're going to look at two parts of Job, one in chapter 33 and then another in chapter 36. In hopes of finding an answer to the question, how does God's opposition show up in our lives? Job 33, verse 14. This is a, a great statement. For God does speak now one way, Now another, though man may not perceive it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn man from wrongdoing and keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in his bones, so that his very being finds food repulsive and his soul loathes the choicest meal. His flesh wastes away to nothing and his bones once hidden now stick out. His soul draws near to the pit and his life to the messengers of death. Yet if there is an angel on his side as a mediator, one out of a thousand, to tell a man what is right for him, to be gracious to him and say, spare him from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom for him. Then his flesh is renewed like a child's. It is restored as in the days of his youth. He prays to God and finds favor with Him. He sees God's face and shouts for joy. He is restored by God to His righteous state. Then he comes to men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, but I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and I will live to enjoy the light. God does all these things to a man twice, even three times, to turn back his soul from the pit, that the light of life may shine on him. Now, turn to chapter 36 with me. We're going to look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 36. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. It is true that God does discipline us. If you will, you could even say at times He afflicts us. But please understand, there is great affection in the affliction. The affection of a God who is wooing us. He's getting our attention. He's getting our ear. He draws us to listen. And He's wooing us from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction. Understand that God is a sovereign God. He loves us. He cares for us. Now, what I'm about to share with you, and this is pretty strong medicine here. I understand this. But it's the truth. It's in God's Word. It's not just in Job. It's not just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament too. Prepare for impact. 
it has great impact on our lives. Look at verse 7 of our text in 1 Peter chapter 5. I've often wondered, and it was not until this past week as I was preparing this message, that I understood, I believe, and I hope you will too, why verse 7 actually fits with verse 6 and verse 5. Here's how I know that, because there's no full-fledged verb in verse 7. This is a modifying verbal, a participle modifying the whole idea of our needing to humble ourselves under God, especially when God is speaking to us through difficulty, getting our ear through affliction. Now listen carefully what it says, casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. This echoes Psalm 55:22. Jot that down and listen to what the Scripture says. Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. You see the connection between 1 Peter 5, 7 and Psalm 55, 22. Do you know what the word burden really translates? Listen carefully. Cast what He has given to you and He will sustain you. What has He given to you and to me? Well, I can't say what He's given to you that's burdensome. But what I do know in my own experience, and I'm no poster child for this at all, one way or the other, but what I do know in my own experience is that the Lord has chastened me, lovingly I might add, for His sake and for my sake, and to some degree for the sakes of those people that God might use me to encourage and to lead spiritually. He's done this. And I have begun to learn to cast what He has given me onto Him. Because His shoulders are broad enough to handle it, mine aren't. And I cast it on Him. And He woos me into a spacious place. A place free of restriction. Some of you this morning are under great restriction because you're wrestling with the difficulties in your life. Please understand, if you are a daughter or a son of God, God has allowed that to happen to you. He's involved in that because He's speaking to you about His desire for you to humble yourselves under His mighty hand. Let's look at some specific aspects of pride that God opposes Having said that, I'm going to speak about three areas. One is the pride of accomplishment. I'll go to Nebuchadnezzar again. Spoke of him a bit earlier in the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel. We hear him in the 30th verse speaking from the top of his palace as he looked over the impressive architecture, all the activity of the capital of his empire, and he said this. Listen to what he said. Is it not this the great Babylon which I have created by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? He was speaking of his accomplishment. And who would argue? Historians are agreed. He was one of the greatest emperor's leaders in the history of the ancient world. Who would argue that? But what happened next is very telling. What happened? No sooner had he gotten those words out of his mouth where he declared his mighty power and his glory and majesty than he was struck by an opposing God. And for the next seven years, he wandered like an animal until one day, all of a sudden, he came to his senses. And how did he come to his senses? He looked heavenward and he began to praise the Lord. Remember that story? It is a phenomenal story. And it is indeed a picture of this whole issue of God opposing the proud so that that person who is proud can come to the place of recognizing that it is God whom we serve. It is He who deserves the glory. So God opposes 
expressions of pride in the area of accomplishment, personal accomplishment. Also, in the area of pride of appearance. Now, there were several people who came to my mind whose stories are told in Scripture, but I've settled this morning on one, Absalom. Do you know who Absalom was? He was the second-born son of King David. And Absalom was a very ambitious young man. And he pulled off a coup d'etat and had his father kicked out of Jerusalem off the throne. And his father became his adversary. It was heartbreaking for David. But the text says us and tells us in 2 Samuel 14, 25 and 26, that of all the men in all of Israel, there was one, not one rather, more handsome than Absalom. And then the writer includes the fact that his hair was just to die for. I can understand that. You women don't think that men die for somebody's hair. And I'm not talking about D-Y-E here. We don't know as much about that as you do. But D-I-E. Right? And he had such a full, thick head of hair. And then he didn't cut it but once a year. You know, if I had that much hair and it weighed a lot, it would be sort of bothersome. I'd want to cut it more than once a year. Why do you think he waited once a year to cut the hair? He was proud of his appearance, wasn't he? And how did he die? Do you know how he died? He was engaging the army of David, and he was in a thicket, as we would call it in Tennessee, riding on a donkey or a mule, and as he rode through this area, there was a low-hanging limb, and I can just see his hair flowing, you know? Kind of like Fabio, flowing like that, you know? And all of a sudden, what does he find himself experiencing? He's caught in the tree. And he dies there. God opposes the proud. People are proud of their appearance. Now, God makes beautiful things, doesn't He? Thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for a handsome young man. And if you read the story, uh, Absalom had a sister who was a beautiful lady too, Tamar. Thank God for creating those things which are beautiful to the eye. God did that. That was no accident that they were beautiful. There's nothing wrong with being beautiful. But remember what humility is? It's not denying the power or the beauty you have, but acknowledging its source. And therefore, using that power or using that beauty for the honor of God. God opposes pride of accomplishment, pride of appearance, but He also opposes pride of position. There is a king of Judah. We read his story in Second Chronicles 26. His name was Uzziah. Uzziah became king as a teenager, and for 52 years he reigned as king. The longest reign of any king of Judah. And during his reign, things were awesome. His death created great stir in the nation. Prior to his death, however, we read a story that needs some background before we get to the details of the story. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 26.5 that as long as Uzziah sought the Lord, God gave him success. And then if we work our way down the text a little further in verse 15, the Scripture says this, He was greatly helped that is Uzziah, by God. He was greatly helped until he became powerful. And his pride led to his downfall. He became unfaithful to the Lord his God. And then that unfaithfulness and pride which led to his downfall exhibited itself in his taking some incense and going into the temple, the place where only priests were allowed to go, and usurping the responsibility and right of the priest. He got so big for his britches. He thought he was not only the king, but he was also able to do the priestly duties. And this appalled the 
chief priest and 80 other priests, they went in and they confronted him and he made him so mad. He got so angry that they would have the gall to challenge him. And then all of a sudden, he was struck with leprosy. And he was hustled out by the priest of the temple. And for the rest of his life, he lived not in the palace. He was still king, but he had to live separate from his family and from his nation because of his pride, which led to his downfall. Listen to what the writer of Second Chronicles says about Uzziah's leaving the temple. This is what it says. Uzziah was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. Do you know what I think that means? He recognized the affliction was directly related to his expression of pride and how that threatened God's glory. And so, he leaves real quick. He was seeking relief. And when we wrestle with pride, what God wants us to understand is, looking at our text again, that we are to humble ourselves under His mighty hand. Do it before you reach that point of great affliction. When you sense discipline from God, humble yourself. Be in a position of humbling all the time. Because what does the text tell us? All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. It's always in vogue. It's stylish for you and I as believers to dress ourselves in humility. This is what Paul writes, in effect, in Romans thirteen fourteen, where he says, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you clothing yourselves regularly with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you demonstrating humility as we have looked at it from the Scripture? God wants us to be humble because He wants to exalt us at the proper time. Look again at the text. Verse 5. Start where we started today. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And then the last part of verse 6, that He may exalt you at the proper time. You know, the Lord wants to exalt us. That's interesting, isn't it? But He cannot exalt us when we are all the while exalting ourselves. It flies in the face of who God wants us to be. It goes against the grain of His will for all of our lives. So, how does God exalt the humble? Well, He gives grace to the humble. That's what the text says in verse 5. What is grace? We typically associate and limit our association with the idea of grace to saving grace, to justifying grace. When we were born again and justified by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we would be wrong not to think in those terms. However, we have a very stilted view of grace if that's all that we think about when we think of grace. Paul writes to Timothy, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is not only for saving us, it's for sanctifying us. God gives us the power, the sanctifying power of the Spirit of God is necessary in order for us to be men and women who receive His grace and be humble. Think about Jesus with me again for a moment in Paul's great treatise on the Incarnation. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace. And two verses later, this is the way that John writes about Jesus, and of His fullness, we have all received. Now, if you know Jesus Christ, how much of the fullness of Jesus have you received? According to what the Bible teaches. You have received all of His fullness. And then he concludes that by saying, and grace after grace 
Are you like me? Do you enjoy going to the beach? Some of you have been to the beach before. Others of you have never been. Do you like to go to the beach? I love it. It's so restful and peaceful, isn't it? And when we sit on the shore, I could sit for hours and have done it, just watching the waves roll in and roll in and roll in, wave after wave after wave. That's what God's grace is for you and me if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. There's no end to what you and I will need to enable us to accomplish whatever God gives us to accomplish. Not the least of which is humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that in due time He may exalt us The book of Proverbs, chapter 15, verse 33, says, Humility comes before honor. We cannot really be honored by the Lord, exalted, until we humble ourselves before Him. It's impossible. Humility comes before honor. I was in a meeting one time with, hundreds of other pastors, and our guest speaker was a man named R.T. Kendall. Dr. Kendall was, at that time, pastor of the Westminster Chapel in London. And his successor, about two or three times removed, was Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great man of God. He was a man who understood what it meant to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. And this is what Dr. Lloyd-Jones told Kendall when they had their first conversation. He said to him, R.T., the worst thing which can happen to a man, it would be for anybody, let's insert the word person, the worst thing that can happen to a person is for him to succeed before he is ready. And many of us are in a rush to succeed. And our reason for wanting to succeed is really self-serving in nine times out of ten. We want to build a reputation. We want to build a bank account. We want to be admired by other people. What's wrong with those things? Is it wrong to have money? Absolutely not. Money's not the root of evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. God wants to work in our hearts and teach us how to wait. And once we reach that point, we will understand why God does indeed exalt us. We've talked about Moses a couple of times already. One more time. Why do you suppose Moses had the kind of response he had to other people prophesying to his own family criticizing him. How did he have that kind of sweet spirit? Well, the first 40 years of his life, he lived the life of a prince. He was in Pharaoh's palace. The next 40 years, due to some impetuosity on his part, he jumped the gun and thought he would lead Israel on his terms out of slavery. And that got him nowhere. In fact, It made him a fugitive because he murdered a man who was abusing one of the Hebrews and he was trying to make that right. And the result was he had to run out. He was gone. For 40 years he'd been an aristocrat. A young man who was quite the young man. The next 40 years he was a shepherd on the backside of the Midianite desert. He came at the age of 80 to do this great work of deliverance. And for 40 more years, he led the people. He led them. He was God's spokesman. And aren't we grateful for Moses? We have the first five books of the Bible because God used Moses. Awesome. Someone has said accurately, for the first 40 years of Moses' life, he learned what it was to be somebody For the next 40 years of Moses' life, he learned what it was to be nobody. In the last 40 years of his life, he learned what God can do with a nobody. The Bible would suggest to us 
in this text and elsewhere. That God delights in exalting the humble because when God uses a humble person, God gets the glory. That's why. And that's not because God is self-serving. That's because God created us for His glory. And He knows we miss our intended purpose and the joy which accompanies that and the peace which accompanies that and the love which accompanies our bringing glory to Him. We miss that if we're intent upon making a splash for our own glory. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Bible says, Brothers, remember what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble. Some were, obviously, but not many. God delights in using that which is considered of no value in the world. Perhaps you know that humility, the word which is translated humility, when Aristotle talked about it, or other philosophers in the Greco-Roman tradition talked about this word humility, it was never used positively. It was always viewed not so much as a vice, but it certainly was not viewed as a virtue like the Bible shows us in both Testaments. Because a person about whom this was written or spoken was a person who was looked down upon. But we know that Jesus is the epitome of humility. And He wants us to be such. Did God the Father exalt Jesus because of His humility? Why, yes. He gave them the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was exalted to the highest place because He humbled Himself. Becoming one of us so that we could know God through Him. And to fix us up so that we could be like Him. We are all in the process of being remade into the image of Christ. God has saved us for the express purpose of conforming us to the image of His Son, Jesus. So what are we to wear this Christmas? Humility. That's what we're to wear all the time, but there's no better time than now. Because of what Christmas is really about, isn't it? About the Lord humbling Himself and becoming our servant. Becoming one of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are so patient with us. You love us, Lord. Help us to take what Your Word teaches us about humility and add to our understanding in our hunger to humble ourselves under Your mighty hand that You may exalt us at the proper time. Give us patience, Lord, until such time comes. We thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. God bless you.